All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, we'll be in verses 7 through 12 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me tell you the key truth that I would love for us to walk away with this morning. It's that God miraculously uses pride and hardness of heart to graciously bring about his plan of salvation. Let me say that again. God miraculously uses pride and hardness of heart to graciously bring about his plan of salvation. Let me say this. For God, it's not much of a miracle. The miraculous part is that is on our side, that we would recognize that there's no force so strong in the universe to keep us from him. And that is good news to us. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Romans 11, 7 through 12. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we step into this, this is a tricky passage of sorts, because I'm, I'm sure a lot of you heard some things that uh, you're like, ah. I don't know how this works. Well, this is important for us that we remember some of how we hear uh, in radical individualistic Western culture and thought is not how Paul was talking and not even how God works. And so we want to be careful uh, that, that we don't impose upon these texts, these things, something that God actually is not saying or better said to try to come up with a rule by which we know who's in and who's out. Is that our responsibility? To know who's in and who's out. It isn't at all. Is it our responsibility to share the beauty of the gospel given the fact that God can predestine and elect whom he wills and turns out to be far more gracious than any of us would ever be? Yes. We are to be missional in this regard. And so let me ask you a question. How do you react to pride and hardness of heart in other people? It's interesting, and you really need to think about this. Uh, I don't know that there's a more obnoxious kind of way in which to engage with someone, someone who's prideful, someone who is hard of heart, hard of hearing. They're, they're just the worst, right? Uh, to, to put it in the common vernacular. Uh, they are incredibly hard to deal with. They seem hopeless. And I would, just like you, just as soon not deal with them because it's maddening. But interestingly... How does God respond to pride and hardness of heart? He is drawn into it. He is drawn toward it in the sense that he sees there's a problem that's going to cost the prideful and the heart of heart eternity, which is the whole reason that he sent Jesus. And who are we in reference to God if we are in union with Christ? What are we? Well, we are ambassadors of this here reconciliation. So I ask you, if God is drawn toward the heart of heart and he's drawn toward those who are prideful, which way should we run 
toward them. Because we know the stakes. We know the cost. We know that eternity is at risk. Now, I am numbered among you. Those are not my favorite people, probably because I see some of myself in those people, if I'm honest, right? And so it is a difficult thing to be drawn to those who don't want what you're offering, who think they know. I remember one time, uh, one of my nieces was dating a guy uh, who was maybe all of 19 and knew everything and more. And he was, he was the worst to be around. And he kept telling me how he could have been a pro baseball player if only he had tried. Oh, that's fascinating. Let me take you outside and see if you can hit my curveball. And he drove me nuts, right? But which way is this young man headed if, if he continues in that? If he, if he has no example, no one who loves him enough to say, that is going to kill you someday. That kind of arrogance is going to destroy you, and I'm not going anywhere. You can't drive me away because I love you, and I would rather be drawn to you than from you. I get it. That takes Jesus and the Holy Spirit to be at work in us, and we're not always going to get that right. But I just want us to at least admit that hardness of heart and pride actually ought cause us to move towards someone, to pray for them, to reach out to them, to not draw away from them as if they are already condemned. That would not be the way that God has treated us. Now let me ask you the second question. How do you deal with pride and hardness of heart in you? See, if you're like me, you probably, on occasion, double and triple down. You try to point out that it's the plank in the, or the, the log jam in the other person's eye that, that is actually the problem, not you. That they can't see you for what you really are, that you're really just, you're really too good for all this. You're really too smart for them. It sounds terrible when you say it like that, right? But... But because of what Christ has done for us, we can actually be that honest. We can come clean of the fact that we actually genuinely think we are better than most of the people around us. And we are better than the circumstances. And we're better than this, this church that has no air condition, right? Uh, which, by the way, let me give you a quick update on that. The entire unit's blown. It's not just a parts issue anymore. And they didn't budget for a new unit. And for those of you who are saying, hey, Shouldn't we get a reduction in rent? Let me just say they've never, ever raised our rent in 20 years. We're not paying market value. And thus, this is what air conditionless church costs. So, that aside, now back to, back to the sermon. Uh, and so, we need to recognize that we, because of what Christ has done, can actually be genuinely fully honest about the arrogance that lurks within us about the pridefulness, about the, the we thinking we are better than those kinds of people, right? Uh, and, and we all do it. Let's be honest. There's many of you, especially uh, with the election cycle coming up, you're pretty convinced you're smarter than that other group. You're pretty convinced that you are more moral and sanctimonious. Wait, hold on. Did, did we admit to sanctimony? We should, because we are which is prideful and arrogant, right? And for much of what we want, if we really are honest, it's selfish. It's not whether or not it's what's best for the entire country. It really is what's best for me and, and my, my investments and my community, which, again, are not all bad in and of themselves, but are truncated and narrow oftentimes. You just have to admit it. And you get to because Christ has redeemed you, because Christ draws near to the prideful and the hard-hearted. And so we would do well to confess first the plank in our own eye. 
before we go trying to love those who have the speck of pride and hard-heartedness. And so let's step into the text and continue the flow. Remember that if we were to read Romans 9 through 11 and not walk away with a greater sense of the missionality of God, we have misread the text. If we read Romans 9 through 11 and conclude uh, that, and without emotion anything about predestination, we have misread the text. Predestination should move us in the same way that it moved Paul toward those who are perishing, toward those who are hard-hearted and prideful, because what other hope do they have? And so, as he is continuing to unpack what the problem is, remember, he's dealt with, is God the problem? What did he conclude? No. No, he's not. So now he's going to turn to Israel herself. What then? So if God's not the problem, what is the problem? Israel failed to obtain what, what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. Now, this is really important that we recognize that, that Israel had set out to, in her chosenness, in her receiving of the promised land, in her receiving of the covenants and the law, what she was seeking to do is to be the most beloved of God in all the world. This is the entire group. The way that she went about it was to try to have all the gods love her equally. Remember, she syncretized. She brought in, well, if God is to be taken care of, but what about Baal? What about Molech? What about all these other gods around? And then she sought, as Isaiah frequently tells us, to, to, to have the nations that were surrounding to love her. Not in God, not, not in God's goodness, not in the promises of God, not in the covenants of God, but in what she could offer to them in a commodified exchange. Instead of being ambassadors of reconciliation representative of the Abrahamic covenant. Right? So she was seeking something that was kind of good, which was love, to be beloved. But it was in an arrogant and a prideful and a sinful fashion. It was with pride and selfishness and hardness of heart. So in the grace of the Lord, Israel did not find it. However, in the grace of the Lord, he made sure that within Israel there was a remnant. Reminded of the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all of those people go into exile. And they're the main four that hold the line. The Lord made sure that, that, that the Davidic lineage would not be stamped out. If you do any reading of First and Second Kings, you will see over and over and over again the principalities and powers of darkness trying its best to stamp out the Davidic lineage because they know in some form or fashion, deep within themselves, Jesus is coming. And if you can clip the line before it gets to him, now you are God. They weren't able to do it. Praise God. And so, so it's very important that, that we see the Lord's grace at work in both of these things. Now, these things are kind of a hard word for us. It says, but the rest were hardened. We don't like that kind of language. Why? Let's be honest. Why do you not like the fact that God could harden you? Because you're out of control. You don't get to say when it happens. You don't get to say for how long you will be hardened. You don't get to say for what purpose you will be hardened. That drives you and me crazy, does it not? That God at some point in his divine and redemptive and gracious will. Now, this is really important. 
does he ever harden arbitrarily? Does he ever say, all right, whoever gathers at Christ Community Church on Sunday morning, I'm going to harden 20%. In fact, I'm going to harden the first 20% that gets there. Because they all think they're better than the folks who show up late long after the call to worship. Often after the, uh, the confession of sin and assurance of pardon in that first song. Right? He's going to harden that first group. What, what if, that's arbitrary, correct? No, no, the reason for God's hardening is disobedience. Israel had already shown that she had no interest in the gifts that the Lord had given her and the grace that he had bestowed upon her and the status as beloved that had been exemplified over and over and over again. There's so much grace in the Old Testament, it is mind-blowing. And she rejected it again and again and again, and she mistreated the poor, she mistreated the widow, she mistreated the orphan, she, she exalted the rich and denigrated the poor who bear the same image. And she refused, refused to be the ambassador's reconciliation that God had called her to. So the Lord hardened her further. To take away some of the joy and some of that hardening, you remember, was actually sending them into exile. That was judgment that brought about a hardening. And you may say, this just doesn't seem fair, though, because listen to what he quotes from Isaiah. says that God gave them a spirit of stupor. It was he who blinded their eyes so they couldn't see and their ears that they wouldn't hear down to this very day, which he addresses in Corinthians when he talks about there, there being a veil over Israel that can only be lifted if God lifts it to redeem them. And so you may say, this just doesn't seem fair. Well, if the point, which, which really when we're dealing with God and justice, fair is not on the table, by the way because he is the creator of the universe and much more powerful than us, but he doesn't pull that card on us like we like to pull on other people apologetically. Instead, he is gracious to give us this text from Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 29, and we would do well, just like we've done in the past, to see the fuller context. So if you would hold your place in Romans 11 and flip to Isaiah 29, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 14, because again, remember, for this audience, when a portion of Scripture would be quoted they would have, have known the greater context. They would have uh, known that, that Paul was pointing to something greater than just the immediate words. So hear what this says from Isaiah. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep or stupor and has closed your eyes. Interestingly, there's a parenthetical note, the prophets. So, so when it talks about Israel being blinded, what it is saying is essentially the prophets have ceased to speak. The Lord is no longer granting you his word. There is a famine in the land, something that we take for granted. We assume, because we have the internet, you can listen to the best preaching any minute of any given day you want to. But what you can't guarantee is that it will move you one whit closer to the Lord. And so then it goes on and it says, and he covered your heads, which means essentially deafened them. And that would be the seers. And so he's essentially saying he has removed uh, his, his spiritual word, his grace to the people in and through the prophets and seers and priests. 
That's what it means to be blinded and to be deafened. So this isn't an individualistic thing. This is something that happens to the entire people. And then it goes on. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. Now that's really interesting if any of you remember from our study in the book of Revelation. Remember there was the book that was sealed. Who could open it? The Lamb. Christ alone. And then it says, when men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I can't, for it is sealed. And when they gave the book to one who cannot read it, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, which that should actually trouble us a little bit. Therefore, behold, listen to how he's going to respond to that. I will again do wonderful things with this people. With wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. Essentially, he's saying the new covenant's going to come. I'm going to write my law upon their hearts so that they can interact with me without a human mediator. That Christ, the Spirit, would be at work in them. Essentially, this is calling forward. So notice... What kind of people is he going to do these wonders for? Who are these people? What does it say they are like? Well, they are hypocrites of the worst kind. They draw near with their mouth, so they, they pay homage. They would, have, they would have been in our service this morning. They would have done the confession. They would have sung louder than any of you. They would have sung in better tune than most of you. Right? They, they would have gotten it right. They would have been on cue and on point. But you know what they don't do? They don't love God. And they are not in awe of him. He is just a cosmic candy machine. This is just a commodified exchange. Be warned. Be warned. Because many of us here this morning, if we are not careful, this is just a commodified exchange. We don't actually love the Lord who loves the hard-hearted and loves the prideful and loves the sinful and draws near to the broken. We go through the motions because we think that God can be fooled, that he can't see your interior, that he doesn't know the darkness of your heart, that he doesn't know the condition of you and how you feel about those whom he loves the most. So we need to be warned because this could be us. But at the same time, in the warning, remember, always with judgment and warning comes redemption. There is the offer that the Lord will still yet draw near to you. Why is this good news to us? Because how many hard-hearted and prideful unbelievers do you know in your family or your spheres of influence that you're wondering how in the world will they ever come to know? Will you pray to the God who will draw near them and you be his hands and feet, keeping ever before them the truth and the beauty of God's character? Remember, for us to be righteous is to display the character of God in the world, to display the fruit of the spirits, to display the image of Jesus. And praise be to God that we have that kind of power at work in us because of the resurrection of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I get it. I would rather... With those that I know and love that don't believe, I would rather it be in my control, so I think. 
I would rather be able to logically reason them and sit down with them and plead with them. I would rather that, that, that my brief dedication to them, my brief sacrifice, and I use that term brief very specifically, my brief sacrifice for them would save them, that they would see that and be drawn. Paul even says this, if you remember, I would give up my salvation if it would mean some of my brothers and sisters would come to know Jesus. But praise be to God, we don't have to do all that. And praise be to God that we have access, we have a, an open access because of Jesus to the throne of grace to receive all that we need in a time of trouble, both mercy and grace. And this is why Paul can talk like this. This is why Paul can pull from Isaiah 29. And an even more complex text is what he quotes next which is Psalm 69. He quotes verses 22 and 23. Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm. It is about the line of David, but it is used of Christ. And these words seem even harsher, do they not? May their backs be bent forever. If you were to read Psalm 69, David is in trouble and some people are trying to kill him and he is venting his spleen. And what's interesting, being that it's messianic, is that really this, this means take away the things that give them joy, O oh Lord, so that they would actually be drawn back to you. Because think about it. When everything is going well, interestingly, isn't that biblically the most dangerous season in all of our lives? Isn't that the moment that we are most at risk to forget the Lord our God because everything's going well? It was true for the people of God, and it's still true for us. Consider someone who is not of the Lord, for which there is no consequence to their behavior, for which they don't sense in any way, shape, or form a hunger or a thirst or a blindness or a deafness or a hardness. When everything is kind of going along well, what do we need of God, especially if we don't know him? And so what, what is being cried out here is, Lord, take away their comfort. Now, for those of you who are parents and have family members, this is a hard prayer because God will answer it. And you may not like how heavy his hand will fall. You may not like all that he takes away. You may wonder, Lord, I, I think you've gone too far. I think you're doing too much. Or you may think, I don't think you're doing enough. Maybe you need to strip more away, Lord, and you become cynical and angry, careful. But we can pray for the Lord to move in the lives of those we know who don't know him, and we can ask, Lord, would you take away the comfort that keeps them from you? And what's interesting is we need to recognize this, this may be not just for the blatant unbelievers, the former radical anti-theists like myself, but for those who think they're Christians and have other gods and have other idols that they modify their Christianity with. As I've said before, and I think this is important, don't bristle too hard because I'm going to get both sides. Israel, apart from God, apart from Jesus, looks a lot like the American church. I'm pretty persuaded. And I mean the American church that thinks either on one side that she's smarter than God 
knows better than God, and that if you just love a few poor people, that ought to be enough for God to continue to love you, whether or not Jesus was God, or miraculously born of a virgin, or any of that other stuff. Who needs all that stuff? Let's just do, and that's plenty. No, it is not. And then there's the other side that thinks we are the chosen ones. We are the elect. We have manifest destiny. We have been granted the greatest resources the world has ever known. Who can vanquish us with my American flag and the Christian flag on the stage to let you know who my gods are and in equal measure, which there is no place on the throne for nationalism. There just isn't. Am I not proud to be an American? My grandfather fought in World War II at Iwo Jima. I am. But that pride should lead to a humility because for whom much is given, much is required. And so we need to be careful that our arrogance doesn't modify who we are in Christ and cause us to find ourselves in a place where we're being hardened. Many of you may be thinking right now, well, maybe that's why we don't have air conditioning. Somebody in here ain't doing right. Find them. Get them forward. Right? <laughs> if that's it, Lord, break us. You know, the chairs are already, that's already a thing. Uh, <laughs> how much more, O oh Lord, will you strip from us? All right, but shouldn't we be drawn to him? Shouldn't the answer to that question draw us toward him, not away from him? It shouldn't harden us further. It should tender us to the Lord who loves and provides so much. And notice what Paul concludes here. This is one of the glorious displays of Romans 8.28. This Next two verses, if you've ever wondered, what does Romans 8.28 look like as far as Paul is concerned? Here it is. And remember, we talked about this, that Romans 9 through 11, in addition to the other things we've mentioned, is an exposition of Romans 8. It is the defense of all that Paul says, especially toward the end. But listen to this. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall? So he's essentially saying, is God cruel? Is God arbitrary? Is he failing to be gracious? This is what he's asking in this question. By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. God takes everything and uses it for the good. God takes everything to use to help form and fashion those who will love him. Even pride and arrogance and disobedience and hardness of heart. And you may be going, I don't, how does that work? Well, don't worry about the math or the physics. Just be glad that it's true because it's been true for you. Or I hope it is true for you. And he goes on to say, Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, which is essentially saying the same thing twice, right? So if their failure has resulted in this great gospel going forward to a people who have no pedigree, they have no covenant, they have no promises, they don't have anything to, to use, Right? In fact, as Romans 1 tells us, it led them to do all sorts of nefarious and awful things to themselves and their souls. And yet, they were granted the riches of the gospel because of the disobedience of the Jews. Now, you could say that feels like a commodified exchange. He's just using them. It would be true, I think, if we stopped there, but he doesn't. He goes on to say, How much more? 
will their full inclusion mean? How much more will it be a great gift to have those who were chosen by God, granted the promised land, granted the promises, granted the covenants, granted grace in the Old Testament, granted visions of Christ in the Old Testament, how much greater will it be to have them as part of the family? And this is the grace of the Lord our God. He is uninterested in, uh, uh, in any way, shape, or form, cutting off entire people groups or nations, nor should we. Nor should we. What's interesting is, uh, outside of the Jews, I don't care what country or race you pick, there's one umbrella. We're all Gentiles. We are one people in this regard. Because none of us had the covenant, none of us had the pedigree, none of us had the promises. And so we are more alike than, which is one of the reasons why we do the, the response to the call to worship that we do to, to make sure we understand how unified we truly are in the things of God. And how great that, that it is that we are bound together. Now, if you would, I want you to hear from Jesus. So if you would, turn to John 12. And it's got echoes of this. It's worth us hearing his heart, his words. We'll be in verses 44 through 50 as we draw to a close. And pay close attention to the flow of his words. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. So who are we saved to? God. Which means which way are we to run when we sin? To his throne where mercy and grace overflow in lavish abundance. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Remember, Jesus didn't come of his own accord. God, out of his love for his people, sent Jesus to incarnate his uh, uh, righteousness, his characteristics in the world. I have come into the world as a light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment and to say and, and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life, which what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. See, Jesus comes offering eternal life, and so we as his ambassadors, what is it we're supposed to do when we engage the prideful and the hard-hearted? What are we to do? Offer eternal life. Remind them of who and whose they either are or could be. What should you say to your own heart when you find pride and hard-heartedness and self-centeredness lurking? The same. Mortify it in Christ. Vivify the, the characteristics of God. This is a great gift to us. This is how the Spirit works in and through us. Listen to what Tim Keller says or Timothy Keller, as is written on the front of his book, pride and self-centeredness lead to hardness and lovelessness. That is really important. It's really important that you, 
actively ask, Lord, show me the darkness of my heart, the places where I am sanctimonious, where I am prideful, where I think I'm genuinely, truly better and more beloved than those people, whoever those people might be. Rejection of God leads to rejection from God. Though God executes it, it is a natural consequence. It is what would happen anyway. But praise God, he speeds it up so you may have more time to come. So let me ask you, how has God used your pride and hardness of heart for his gracious purposes? This is a critical, critical question, I would argue, for you to wrestle with. Because if you can't find any pride or hardness of heart in you, or never have had any, and can't see how God has used it to draw you to himself, then something is wrong. One of the amazing things, uh, I used to uh, be what what, uh, Ambrose Bierce calls positive in a book called The Devil's Dictionary, and that means wrong at the top of my lungs. You might say, you still kind of got some of that going on. Yeah, and Jesus loves me. And And so I used to think that there was a nihilist in the middle of the Bible, and I was even arrogant enough to call him Koaleth, also known as Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes. I was like, you fools. Solomon has concluded what everybody now knows, which is this is all meaningless, which is actually not what the word vanity translates into. Vanity just means ephemeral. Whether or not it has meaning is what you do with it. But I read it wrong and made sure everybody knew I was an evangelist of this twisted text. In fact, I was using it to destroy the faith of those who had joined my deconstruction Bible study group in PT school or physical therapy school. And the Lord, in great grace, redeems me in the middle of all that. And so I I thought, let me reread Ecclesiastes. You know what was interesting? The Lord had blinded me to the ending. I had never, to my knowledge, come to and read the conclusion that is clear in Ecclesiastes, which to the reading of books, there is no end. But this, this one thing, fear the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Age as as a believer, right? And so the Lord let me run around misconstruing his word as an unbeliever. I also had other views about Romans. I ain't from Rome. What do I care what Romans says? Hebrews, I ain't a Hebrew. I don't need to hear from that guy or whoever wrote it. Right? I had all these arrogant views that even kind of seeped into my Christianity and they fell pillar by pillar by pillar. And the Lord used my arrogance and hardness of heart to draw me closer to him. In fact, I one time arrogantly said to Susan, of the many times I arrogantly said things to Susan, who, who among your pitiful Christian writers, <laughs> you, you know, what a great way to start the sentence, your pitiful Christian writers, should I read so I can make fun of them? And of course, she was wise enough to say C.S. Lewis. And I read Surprised by Joy and hated it. I need to reread it because to this day I still think I hate it. No, I, I can't be right. Uh, but then I read Mere Christianity and it decentered me something awful. It hit me in the middle of my pride and arrogance and self-centeredness in a way that I couldn't shake. And so the Lord will use it, and he's still doing it. There are times, even still, where I with a high hand will be filled with rage and anger or uh, just thinking I'm right about something and totally rude about it. 
The Lord will step into that and show me, no, you are too beloved to behave in such a way, and so are the people you're engaging with. And so this is important for us to answer so that we can see the goodness of God. This gives us eyes to see and ears to hear where he is at work in difficult things. And then, and then this next question I think is important too. How has God used the pride and hardness of heart of others to display his grace to you? And there are many opportunities for that to be true and worthy of our consideration so that we can see what Romans 11, 7 through 12 teaches us, that God miraculously, as far as we can see, uses pride and hardness of heart to graciously bring about his plan of salvation. And praise be to God that in a room full of people who have at any given moment, and maybe even now, hardness of heart, pride, and self-centeredness, that this is true of our gracious God, even when we don't know how to do the math. Let's pray. Father, I pray your spirit would be at work, has been at work. I pray the spirit would bear fruit in the work that has been ongoing and in through this worship service, that you would draw us to yourselves, that you would humble us, myself included. Help me to see where I am prideful and arrogant and hard of heart and self-centered toward the people you love and even toward you. Would you move in each of us to see that? Would you bring about a revival of repentance in our hearts and our minds? Would you draw us to you to see that we are forgiven in Christ, that the work, as far as being forgiven is concerned, has actually been finished? And it's for us to, to, to receive as gift. God, I, I pray that you would help us to not grow weary and to persevere with those who are hard of heart and prideful and arrogant and headed for hell. That, that we would not uh, in any way, shape, or form turn away from them just as you did not turn away from us. God, would your spirit be at work in these questions? Help us to see where you have used our pride and arrogance to draw us to you. And, and you used the pride and arrogance of others to draw us to you. Lord, thank you that Romans 8.28 is actually genuinely true for the life of the world your glory, and our joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.